Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amber Nickel, the host of the channel, and today we are going to be talking with Paul Lerner and Uva Spiegelman about their most recent publication, Jewish Consumer Cultures in 19th and 20th Century Europe and North America. The duo edited this, this collection in conjunction with Anna Schenderlein, who could not make it to speak with us today. This book came out on Palgrave Macmillan this year. Paul Lerner is a professor of history at the University of South California, and he has published extensively on Jewish consumerism, Jewish masculinity, and psychiatry. Uva is the former deputy director of the German Historical Institute, which I think he's going to talk about a little today. And then he is also regularly conducting research and publishes on consumption, retailing, and nutrition in the 19th and 20th century uh, United States and Germany. And he's actually joining us today from Weimar. So thanks for virtually joining us for from so far away. Uh, Paul and Uva, welcome to the channel today. I'm really looking forward to discussing this very rich text with you. Well, thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here, Amber. So I wanna start out our discussion today uh, with a question that I always like to open with. Uh, So I think my listeners are familiar with it. And that is what motivated you to compile Jewish consumer cultures in 19th and 20th century Europe and North America? Well, everything has a history, we know. And so this book on Jewish consumer cultures is a kind of intellectual spin-off from the German-American immigrant entrepreneurship project, which was started, you mentioned this, by the German Historical Institute in D.C. in 2010, so quite a while away. Until 2016, we've published nearly 200 biographical and contextual studies still available online for free. Our goal with starting this project was to explore the specific Germanness, of course, of the entrepreneurship and the economic performance of these immigrants to the United States. Well, to be honest, we were not able to give a definition of the German-American business elite in contrast to, for instance, uh, famous Anglo-Saxons or Scandinavian-Americans. We found some patterns of Germanness, but they were fundamentally changing between 1700 and today. German-Americans were no homogeneous groups, and one important difference for this was religion. More than one-third of our German-American entrepreneurs were of Jewish faith, although Jews 
made only 5% of all German immigrants to the United States. Why? We've all learned, we've learned such a lot about the Protestant ethic and the rise of capitalism. But we had to explore the Jewish component as well. Uh, we managed this, of course, in the typical academic way. We uh, tried to discuss the problem with the help of other scholars. And there, as a result, Paul and Schenderlein and I wrote a proposal for a conference. Two dozen colleagues came to Washington, D.C. And afterwards, we decided to focus our efforts on consumption issues and consumer cultures. And this book, Jewish Consumer Cultures, is resulting from this. Thank you for that. And man, are we glad that y'all got together in D.C. Um, as a reader. So for listeners who may be less familiar with the economic turn in Jewish studies um, and, and in German studies to a lesser degree and increased emphasis on consumer cultures, would you tell us what you mean by the term Jewish consumer culture? Absolutely. I'd, I'd be glad to discuss that. But I think to really begin to define Jewish consumer culture, or let me say Jewish consumer cultures in the plural, because it's never just one thing. Um, in order to discuss that, I think it would be most useful to come back a little bit and define some terms here. So first of all, when we talk about the economic turn in modern Jewish history, what, are we, what do we mean by that? And there I would say that um, as Uva alluded to a moment ago, it, it's known that Jews were extraordinarily active uh, as entrepreneurs, as capitalists, as retailers in a variety of contexts and spheres in really um, not just in the modern period, but that is our focus here today. But those topics, a kind of um, serious scholarly study of Jews' role in entrepreneurship and capitalist enterprises um, this was really taboo for quite a while. And taboo, of course, because it is a really fundamental part of, of anti-Semitism, of Nazi anti-Semitism in particular, but of course, a much broader constellation of anti-Semitism, which focuses on allegedly um, excessive Jewish wealth, Jewish greed, corrupt, allegedly corrupt Jewish business practices, and so forth and tries to kind of protect the innocent subject, um, national subject from this kind of invasion. These are, of course, stereotypes which haven't gone away, unfortunately. So I think that prevented many scholars from really wanting to touch the question of Jews and capitalism for quite some time. But I would say really because of developments in social history and economic history and I think also because of an explosion of research into the history of capitalism, which of course predates 2008, but I think was given kind of new urgency and impetus by the recession of 2008. I think all these factors came together and started to remove the taboos and open the gates for really serious scholarly reflection about these processes. So that I would call the economic turn in Jewish history or historiography. And there are a number of scholars who I think too many for me to name here briefly, who've been active and doing excellent work in that area. So we um, draw on that work, but we're specifically turning to consumer culture, which is a topic that Uva and I have both worked on extensively, but 
in, I would say in complementary ways, but with different emphases and different perspective from different perspectives. And by consumer culture, what we really mean is looking at the ways that things, material goods, possessions, objects, how these are so important in shaping identities, in creating meaning, in com- communicating the status and position of individuals in a society. So social historians traditionally understood uh, people's position in society really largely in terms of their place in systems of production, right? Where, where did, were they working class, bourgeoisie? Were they owners of, of, the, of the means of production and so forth using kind of crude Marxist models? And shifting things, turning to consumer culture is a, really a way of seeing people not as producers, but as consumers, or at least let's say seeing people as both producers and consumers, but looking at how their role as consumers is also incredibly important for creating meaning, right? For creating identity, for um, embodying certain kinds of practices with all kinds of significance. So then finally, when we come to, and I apologize that this answer is so long, but when we come to Jewish consumer cultures, that allows us to start asking how objects play a role in creating Jewish identities or in, let's say, creating um, challenges for Jewish communities, but also opportunities for Jewish communities. And again, we looked at this in, in the volume um, and Uva and Anna and I all had you know, really different ways of getting into these topics. But we looked at these as, um, you know, from a variety of angles, for example, in Jew, the role of Jews in creating certain retail sectors or how the choice of which kinds of goods to purchase or consume or display, you know, how those kinds of choices are reflective of what's going on in certain communities at certain times, how practices of consumption in some ways allow you to see how the the difference between Jews and non-Jews, right, allow you to see how that operates in certain situations and and contexts. But in other ways, of course, it uh, lets you see processes of assimilation and acculturation, how Jews are trying to be like others, right? So it really cuts, I mean, it's it's a remarkably, I think, um, both tight, but also kind of sprawling topic because it cuts in so many different directions because our relationships with the goods that we purchase and consume and eat and wear and adorn ourselves with and and decorate our homes with and use for religious practices, right? There's such a variety of kinds of objects and acts of purchase and display that are associated. I really like that you both brought together this unique kind of Jewish element of consumer culture in this text, as well as all of the contributors. But one of the things that really has shaped Jewish history and Jewish experience has been displacement um, and migration. So I'm wondering if you you both, perhaps we'll, we'll start with Paul, might make a few comments on the ways in which migration and displacement uh, have impacted the development of a unique Jewish consumer culture. Absolutely. And one way one could look at that is through the example of emigration to Palestine or um, today Israel, that as uh, we have this comes up several times in our collection and one can see 
on one level, the attempt to create a completely sort of Jewish consumer culture or consumer sphere by decisions about what people who are who are making the move from Europe to Palestine, what kinds of things they choose to bring with them. And so those kinds of decisions allow you to see how they understood themselves, what they think they might need um, as they make this um, life-altering journey. Or you can look at this from the side of entrepreneurs who are, and, and ask, um, as uh, Hizki Shoham does in his essay, ask about the strategies that they use to, um, to advertise, to promote kind of Jewish products, products that were native to, to Palestine, um, you know, questions about what, what should a Jewish state or a Jewish culture look like, you know, are really largely addressed through, through consumption uh, in this case. And I, I, one could certainly also talk about immigration to the U.S., as Uva was talking about earlier, and through the lens of the Entrepreneurship Project, um, to Latin America, to any number of places in the world where Jews have gone and have had to find, first of all, observant Jews have the task of having to find kosher products and um, the other kinds of ritual objects which make living a, um, an observant Jewish life possible. But then there are also questions about uh, how Jews are going to find the things they want or the things they're accustomed to in, you know, in the new environments that they've emigrated to, right? Often at a, a, you know, and I guess another, perhaps it's better if Uva speaks to this, but another way of looking at it is how immigrants themselves, whether it's Jewish immigrants in the garment industry in the 19th century or immigrants from from Asia or Latin America in, in the U.S. today or what have you, you know, how immigrants play such an important role in um, doing the productive labor that makes a consumer society possible. Well, if I may add, um, uh, looking back to the 19th century, you have quite similar uh, developments, but not in migrating from one country to another, but first of all, <clears throat> by uh, migrating, for instance, to larger communities. So urbanization is the first way of uh, internal migration in Germany, but also other Western uh, cultures. And uh, uh, there you have um, a new infrastructure, which on the one side allowed much more liberal interpretations of Jewish faith, Judaism, and also a different lifestyle. So Vienna, Frankfurt, or Berlin are different places than the typical small rural villages where the majority of Jews uh, lived in um, uh, the late 18th century, for instance. But even then, in the mid-19th century, in a, a setting with this quite comparable culture, dominant Gentile culture, uh, consumer goods were always an important issue for Jewish identity. Uh, and on the one hand, um, they were a challenge. Uh, this was the lure of luxury or something like that. But on the other side, consumer goods could help to answer the question of Jewish identity because Jews could uh, be insiders and outsiders at the same time. A quite good example for this is uh, the at that time quite famous uh, 
Jewish malt drink producer, Johann Hoff, who was an Orthodox Jew and lived the life of an Orthodox in Berlin. But at the same time, he was a pioneer of modern advertisement, both in Germany and in Europe. Um, Thank you. And I actually think that's a kind of a, a, a nice segue um, to your contribution to this text, Uma. You examine Jewish peddlers and secondhand dealers in Germany from the turn of the 19th century to um, just before the outbreak of World War II. I'm wondering if you might share with listeners today a little bit about how these forms of economic exchange evolved over the course of a little over a century. Well, <laughs> that's a complicated question to answer in uh, in a minute or so. Uh, I took 20 or 25 pages for this. But um, the point is that the paddler is a quite complicated figure. In our imaginary, I guess, he stands for simply selling manufactured goods at the countryside. Um, two centuries ago, uh, paddlers, uh, paddling was quite different. Uh, it linked towns, villages, and the countryside. It dealt with a quite broad range of goods, and it combined very different forms of payment, including cash, credit, and today unthinkable, barter. Um, these paddlers traded new and used goods. They served people from very different social strata and offered a broad and, of course, growing range of consumer goods, things of clocks or something like that. While the majority of Gentile paddlers sold self-produced goods, Jewish paddlers concentrated on retailing nearly everything. Because of this, they were more flexible, were not uh, no longer bound to only one branch, to one form of payment, to specific clients or specific regions. They were able, already in the early 19th century, to understand the circular system of the emerging capitalism and could meet the quite diverse and sometimes contradictory needs and desires of their customer, typical for modern consumer society. Well, most of these Jewish peddlers became successful shop owners in the mid-19th century. They founded garment shops, chain stores, higher purchase houses, and, of course, eventually department stores. However, a large number, and we are talking in Germany about 20,000, continued itinerant retailing. In late 19th century, new forms of second-hand dealing or rag and scrap traders developed in addition to these traditional forms of paddling. And these were often large and even multinational firms with, at, at that time, quite advanced technologies and modern ways of credit finance. But the trade, and this is a quite strange um, examination, was still associated with garbage, with waste disposal, with dirt, with bad smells, and something like that. Bourgeois, German Jews, these shop owners, uh, criticized this in the late 19th century already as un-Jewish, as a kind of backward business practiced by immigrants, poor immigrants from Eastern Europe. And while anti-Semites on the other side denounce this as a true face of Jewish business. So, um, and this is a starting point 
for uh, the Nazi government forbidding simply Jewish paddling and rag and scrap craze in 1938 as an act of public quotation purification. Germans, this was uh, a talk, should consume new goods, even from recycled resources, and the standard business should be uh, shop-based mom and pop stores, no longer itinerant trading. Contribution focuses on the construction of consumer culture within German-speaking Jewish communities in Europe and North America. Can you share with listeners today a little bit about some of the differences and similarities in developments on both sides of the Atlantic? Sure, I'd be happy to talk about my contribution. I conceived of it as a kind of bridge from the work I had done in up to the point and a little bit beyond when we held the conference on department stores in Europe, primarily in Germany, and a new project that I was kind of trying to launch at that point, which I'm now very deep in, about emigres, German-speaking emigres who left Europe in the 1930s and came to the U.S. And as I now see it, uh, the focus on that project is the kind of expert knowledge that they deployed in telling Americans things like how, how to consume, but also how to how to run their households, how to organize their lives, how to raise their children. Um, so the, the project has really evolved quite a bit since I undertook that particular essay. So as I said, that essay was a bit of a, a bridge from one to the other. And it allowed me to, and I think this is really the spirit of your question, to really think through the some the, the kind of different valence of the department store as a symbol of kind of modern urban consumer culture, sort of the different valence of this phenomenon in pre-World War II Europe, as opposed to post-World War II the United States. Um, and secondly, to think very carefully about the influence and impact of Jewish entrepreneurs on these two constellations. One thing that um, I had done is I'd, I'd worked on the department store I'd written about the so-called Jewish department store and the, the ways it was represented and understood and experienced and both celebrated and opposed. I'd written about this in the German context, but I hadn't really followed what happened to some of the people who some of the Jewish um, business people, but also architects, artists, designers, graphic graphic artists, people who were really involved in the, the labor and in the, in the work for creating this kind of retail culture that had flourished so much in interwar Europe, what happened to them after they were driven out of Germany? Um, and of course, some of them did not survive the Nazi period, but quite a few of them did, and quite a few of them came to the United States. So I wanted to kind of look at these two contexts side by side and in some way pick up the story from, from where I'd left it off in, in, in my work on the consuming temple. What I, um, I guess the argument that, I mean, I've, my thinking has, has deepened and, and really changed quite a bit since I wrote that piece. But what, what I argued in the, in the piece was that the department store was understood as a Jewish phenomenon in Germany, especially, but to a great extent throughout Europe in the period really from its origin uh, in the 1880s 
I mean, okay, the question of origins is a whole other red herring, but let's just say for now the 1880s, uh, through the rise of, to power of the Nazis and the persecution and um, so-called Aryanization of these stores um, in the later 1930s. Um, so this, the department store, the, the, the idea of the Jewish department store, the Jewish is almost not it's almost not necessary to say it because department store in, in the eyes of many observers just sort of implied Jewishness. But in the American context where Jews were almost as highly represented among department store entrepreneurs, what I argued was that the, the department store and other kind of branches of modern consumer culture were not seen as Jewish in the same way. And they, they were really understood as European and that these sort of Jewish emigres who did, you know, who, who worked to bring about um, various aspects of modern consumer culture, that they were, they were largely seen as um, kind of sophisticated Europeans when, when they got to the American, when they got to American shores. And I mean, I could just give you one example of this, a figure I talked about a bit in, 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 the chapter who I've been working on quite a bit more lately. Um, and this is Victor Gruen, um, born Victor Grunbaum in Vienna, um, the beginning of the 20th century. And, uh, he was a, um, not really an architect yet in, in, in the Austrian context, but, um, more of an engineer, um, who had done a lot of design work and, uh, apartments and some retail settings. When he came to the United States, he, it's a long story that I won't drag us all through, but he ends up creating what's l- largely considered to be the first mall. Um, and this is the, f- uh, the first, um, this is in Edina, um, Minnesota, which is a, a suburb south of Minneapolis. Um, it's the first fully enclosed climate controlled retail center. Um, and he did a lot of, work on shopping centers, uh, to, uh, to some extent, amusement parks, and, and then spent uh, the next major phase of his career in the 1960s doing urban revitalization projects um, in a bunch of American cities and towns before kind of retreating back to Europe for the last part of his career. Now, why am I focusing on Gruen here? Um, well, what could be more American than the mall, right? And as I was at this really, I came across him originally when I was teaching, when I was designing a course on consumer culture that I teach here at USC. And I was struck by the fact that people like Victor Gruen or another person I talk about in the essay, Ernest Dichter, who was a psychologist who whose claim to fame was as a a developer of the focus group for doing advertising research and what we now call branding in the American context, or Edward Bernays, the kind of creator of public relations, that all of these figures were, I mean, Bernays came to the U.S. when he was quite young, quite a bit earlier, but in any case, these figures were all born in Central Europe. They were all German-speaking Jews, and these are only a handful of the many other figures who were involved in um, the kind of flourishing of American consumer culture in this period from the 40s to the 70s, which is a period of tremendous economic growth uh, in, in the United States, right? Really unprecedented wealth and consumer abundance. So the, it's really struck me that these most American institutions owed their origins to people who had 
fled Europe and, you know, fled for their lives and in some cases escaped quite narrowly um, and then come here, came here. And I've gone, as I said, I've gone a bit deeper into the project. And of course, in, in the in the essay, I mentioned things like um, some of the descriptions and reviews of Gruen's malls talk about how, you know, if you stroll through the atrium, you can almost hear the sounds of a Strauss waltz, you know, running through your head, that it's a little slice of Europe, or someone else writes about his urban development schemes that, of course, he is compelled by by the ring or the circle that all of his plans involve some sort of circular structure because he grew up in Vienna. And Vienna, of course, is marked by the Ringstrasse, this, you know, this kind of fortress-like, um, or rich, that's at least its historical roots, um, circle, you know, in the middle of the city that demarcates the inner city regions from the surrounding areas. Now, th- those are, that's not necessarily wrong, but what I've come to see as I've gotten deeper into working on Gruen is that he really cultivated that idea in, in, a, in a way that's parallel to Ernest Stichter, who had actually never met Freud and had only the kind of most tangential connections to the psychoanalytic establishment in Vienna, but exaggerated those connections to give himself credentials. In, in the same way, Gruen, I think, really wanted people to believe that the mall was bringing the sophistication of Vienna or Venice uh, the you know covered market of the European town, you know, bringing that to the American suburb, that was in some ways a strategy and a selling point. But the larger point, I think, still stands, which is that these institutions w- were not seen as Jewish in any way, even though Jewishness was really fundamental to these peoples, if not always their active identity or their kind of choice of um, you know level of observance or anything in their life story. And, and, and that's why, of course, why they had to leave Europe and they, you know, they, they, they understand themselves as refugees and as Jewish refugees. And yet they are perceived as these kind of wise Europeans who are giving the United States a kind of gift of uh, European tradition and kind of rescuing our crowded cities and our um, automobile heavy um you know, rescuing us from the traffic jams and uh, suburban overdevelopment and the kinds of pitfalls that um, American society started to find itself in um, in the years after World War II. Now that we've had a moment to talk through your individual contributions, I want to focus the rest of our discussion on kind of the larger framework of this collection. Uh, it's broken up into three parts. In the first part, you focus on Jewish retail culture and modern commerce in Europe and North America. What might listeners anticipate reading there aside from your two contributions? Well, the book uh, raises questions. It gives no final answers. Uh, instead, it presents predominantly case studies, and this is this makes sense because at the current stage of research, um, simply broad sections of Jewish consumer cultures are not yet examined. A good example for this are advertisements, simple advertisements in Jewish newspapers and journals. Our Parisian colleague Oliver Bézet examined the largest German Zionist journal, the Jüdische Rundschau, to give us a detailed overview 
on the changing consumer environment before World War I by these radicals. Most striking was the close integration of these Zionists into bourgeois society. They consumed the same and advertised the same um, products. Religious articles, goods, and services held a prominent position, yes, but fragments of these bourgeois life became even increasingly important before World War I. However, as you would imagine, in the Zionist case, imported goods from Palestine were more important because advertising and buying these articles was more than consumption. It was a political statement in favor of RS Israel, of colonization of the land of the fathers. Thank you for that. I want to shift now to the, the second part, oh, which... Uh, sorry, um, uh, I thought Paul would jump in um, because uh, we had another uh, quite interesting article by Nils Römer in this section. Um, he um, presented a biographical and business case study and added, well, let me say, a little bit of luxury to this volume. Uh, he analyzed the emergency of the department store Neiman Marcus in Dallas as a global leader in high-end fashion retailing. Uh, Dallas um, at that time was still one of the largest U.S. clothing producers, but uh, the second owner, Stanley Marcus, was more than this crude moneymaker. He mixed civic engagement and business, stood up for civil rights and social justice in the 1950s and 1960s, and this was a challenge in the American South. The article gives us an idea of how Dallas, Texas, became an international hotspot for arts and especially European haute couture. If you want to see Texas, therefore, in a more liberal, a more international perspective, even if you are at the East Coast, you shouldn't miss this article on a secular Jew transforming his home state to something different, perhaps something better. Thank you for that. The second part shifts to Jewish consumer cultures. And I want to um, ask if the, you, you both might uh, contribute a little bit to this answer. How do the chapters in part two contribute to a more nuanced understanding of what is a relatively new historiographical inquiry? So as Ufa mentioned before, we really see the book as a series of case studies and I think it's we're at the level, we're at the stage of research now in this field where that's exactly what needs to be happening. The case studies need to be written, and then we can begin to do more synthetic work by placing them side by side and kind of looking to see what some common features are and where the field needs to go from here. So uh, we have three case studies here um, in this section of the book, although they are you know, really, really quite different from each other and in both in terms of the the methods that the authors employ, but, and also the, the subjects that, that they study. So, um, I spoke a little bit already about the, the, um, Chizki Shoham, um, 
essay about Jewish consumer cultures in British Mandate Palestine. So I think you already have a kind of a sense of that. And then we have these two other essays, um, one in the American context um, by um, Alyssa Fishman about um, the American suburb. Mrs. Blumenthal builds her dream house, Jewish women in consumer culture and post-war American suburbs. And an essay by Carrie Wallach, uh, buy me a a mink, Jews for and conspicuous consumption. So these are both essays that focus largely on women, but again, they do so in, you know, really different contexts, both geographical and uh, I would say methodological. So the, um, the, the, the Fishman article is about how kind of women in, and she takes the case study of Long Island um, in suburban New York in the post-war period and kind of how women found the foods that they wanted to create Jewish lives um, in this kind of in this community of American Jews who are um, becoming increasingly economically self-sufficient and kind of increasingly acculturated and assimilated in American life. So how, how did they kind of retain a sense of Jewishness? How does the synagogue and the, let's say, the kosher butcher, the kosher bakery kind of take on uh, pronounced roles as they kind of try to form community and carry on traditions, but um, traditions often of their immigrant parents or grandparents, you know, but now in, in this very different setting with greater affluence as well. And uh, that's, you know, a very kind of historical essay that um, uses memoirs and um, sort of uh, kind of local history in some cases. And I think that because they're so different, that is in an interesting kind of dialogue with Carrie Wallach's work, which is really cultural cultural studies, cultural historical kind of project. And um, in this essay, Carrie takes mink um, and, and furs as this kind of Jewish product, which is, again, something that had been kind of taboo to talk about because, of course, what, what could be a more loaded symbol of luxury and kind of consumerist excess than, than fur. But um, she actually kind of goes through and disentangles a long history of Jewish connections, Jewish activity in, in the fur trade and the fur industry and Jewish consumer practices around fur, you know, whether it's Hasidim and the Strymal or, you know, the fur, kinds of fur hats that, that they may wear in some communities or women and fur as an adornment for the luxurious women's body. Um, and so again, it's a kind of taking, taking this theme and going from, you know, really early 19th century deep into the 20th century and beyond um, in this, I think really kind of um, interesting way of combining literary sources with historical motifs and, um, you know, other, other kinds of uh, representations. The third part of your collection really homes in on questions of Jewishness and Germanness as they relate to the meaning of consumption in the modern world. What might listeners find here? Well, well, the first part of this book dealt with institutions and individual business, and the second part was focusing on long-term transformations in the uh, field of uh, consumption. This third part of the book is more on 
intellectual history on more abstract ideas of belonging and not belonging and modern religious identity in a commodified world. Um, our co-editor, Anne Schenderlein, presents some new ideas on the history of Jewish anti-Nazi boycotts, which started in March 1933 as an answer to the persecution of Jews, social democrats, communists in Germany after the Nazi seizure of power on January 31st, 1933. This was, as you probably know, um, answered by the notorious anti-Jewish boycotts, mainly on April 1st, 1933. Many Jewish organizations at that time believed that weakening Germany's economy by boycotting German goods could support the German Jews and the democratic opposition. We believe the same today in the current sanction regimes. However, the effect was fairly limited because participants feared retaliation. Even many exiles uh, still wish to express their solidarity with Germany as a country of education, of literature, of culture, not of Nazis. All Jewish boycotts in 1933, before and at the beginning of World War II and after the Holocaust basically failed. Not at all, because German consumer producers after the Second World War were aware of these problems and used specific marketing, namely in the US and Israel, to sell their uh, advanced consumer goods. As a consequence, and this makes the article really interesting, is that uh, there were many individual boycotts, predominantly in the United States. Collective action was simply replaced by individual consumer boycotts in the 1950s and 1960s. Not buying a Mercedes, not wearing a boss suit, these were elements of silent protests. And in some cases, these protests remain until today. Well, another puzzling way of dealing with the Holocaust can be seen in Michael Berkowitz's study on the post-war art market in Germany and in Europe. Well, um, Jewish photographers, if you look to the market, were by far overrepresented in the 20th century art photography. For Berkowitz, the careers and skyrocketing prices, of course, that's more important, uh, of uh, photographers such as uh, famous Richard Everton, Robert Kappa, and Alfred Stieglitz, and many others, are partly a result of a kind of Wiedergutmachung, of compensation to Jewish artists and to the uh, six million Jews killed by Germans and their helpers uh, during the Second World War. This was also used by experts like, for instance, Josef Breitenbach or Helmut Gersheim uh, to establish and develop a market for Jewish photographers in Europe, in the UK and the US after the Second World War. So you see that, uh, that real history focuses the market and is part of the market performance, even in the field of art. Well, the book ends. Uh, really um, 
ICE article uh, of our success colleague uh, Gideon Rauveni. Um, he mirrors our um, introduction, trying to give a kind of uh, preliminary answers to the general question how Jewish identity was shaped and changed in modern consumer societies. In lands of immigration, this is his typification, like for instance the United States or Canada, consumption allowed Jews to be Jewish and integrated at the same time. Consumer cultures indeed permitted Jews and other groups to preserve their distinctiveness while simultaneously becoming an integral part of mainstream society. Both the Jewish and the general consumer market helped to define the Jewishness of modern citizen consumers. Jewish consumers were, and this is important, not passive, but rather produced their own goods and ideas on Jewishness and made this viable for other groups. So the main culture was also shaped by these Jewish consumer cultures. Identity, and this is typical not only for Jews, became a matter of choice although this resulted often in the loss of Jewishness of particular practices or consumer goods. If you think, for instance, uh, on the bagel, uh, this is a good example for once um, the Jewish commodity, which now is a global uh, success. Thank you for giving us um, collectively that really good overview of what listeners might expect to find inside of this text. Uh, it really was a pleasure to read. Uh, as Lua pointed out, this text really raises questions, doesn't offer any sort of final answers. I think one of the, the really great perks of editing a collection is that you get to take that bird's eye view of a particular topic and to see kind of what is going on. I'm wondering what you both might think some of the potential avenues for further inquiry into Jewish consumer culture might be. I think one area, as with so many other branches of historical work today, one area where the, and you see some beginnings of it here in our collection and also elsewhere is, um, a, a, I should say a growth area is more transnational and global perspectives. Um, it's of course very difficult to do this kind of work, but I think that we, um, many of the studies that we've published here and seen elsewhere are really focused on one particular context and it's perhaps time to start to try to balance the local context with the kind of global um, arena of commodity production and circulation. So I would say that's one area where I think there could be more work. Secondly, we, we not for lack of trying, um, we wish I'll just put it this way. Our, we, we had hoped that our book would have a little bit more of a global um, perspective than we were able to do. We um, understand that there, there's quite a heavy focus on the United States and Germany. And we believe that that focus is justified because these are places which 
played a disproportionate role in the construction of modern consumer cultures and in kind of booming retail industries and cultures of advertising that surrounded and promoted them. But nevertheless, we had hoped to push a little bit further into Eastern Europe, and we did have Eastern Europe represented more at the conference in Washington. We similarly would love to be kind of more in dialogue with people working in Latin American contexts, possibly even in Asian contexts, um, again, just to kind of think much more globally about these processes and to look for similarities and differences and kind of points of connection and contact uh, on a much larger scale. The, the theme of gender runs fairly consistently through, through much of the book, um, particularly in the Alyssa Fishman essay and the Carrie Wallach essay, uh, to some extent in my own contribution. And I think that's also an area where, uh, because it's so bound up with, um, consumer culture, uh, retail culture, that one can never say too much about how um, these are consumer culture so tied up with modern gender divisions and to kind of investigate the ways in which certain kinds of commodities take on gendered meanings, right? Or, you know, become things, you know, the way in which, for example, um, you know, men don't shop, you know, as many of our early 20th century or through mid 20th century sources may have put it, men buy things, but women shop or, right. Or, or the way that certain kinds of goods are marketed to women as opposed to marketed to men. Right. So how is gender working, you know, both in the marketing and um, kind of framing of these goods, but also in the kinds of activities that bring meaning to these goods so, I mean, I think that's another area um, and, and, and beyond that also kind of childhood and how consumer goods are bound up with histories of childhood, with with memories of childhood, you know, how, how children kind of become who they are by um, through particular acts of consumption and display. And then taking that into a Jewish context, to me, that would be something that could also be really fascinating. I think one of the... I'd like to say one of the strengths of our volume is the interdisciplinarity that we have contributions from um, literary studies, from anthropology, from history, and from different kinds of history, you know, more cultural history as opposed to um, social and economic history. And I think this topic is inherently interdisciplinary and the more kinds of interdisciplinary dialogues we can get going between people working in these different fields and subfields the better. And if I may maybe make one final point about this, I think that we, as, as we discuss in the introduction, there is a kind of tension in, in Judaism as well as other religions around um, the kind of this, uh, around a tension between a kind of spirituality or a, um, a way in which religion is about renouncing material goods and the kind of striving for something, you know, ultimately deeper and more meaningful than the superficial level of material consumption. But at the same time, it's impossible without material goods, right? And that if you want to think about the way um, a, uh, a synagogue is adorned, the way um, 
the vestments on a Torah, the, the robe that a rabbi might wear, the uh, decorations on the Seder plate or a challah cover or what have you, that beautification, that, you know, that objects come to play this extremely important role in the signification of religious meaning. And I think it's really fascinating to look at that in different contexts and, you know, and see how these processes of signification play themselves out, you know, what are similarities and then what are differences uh, in different times and different places and different cultures? Well, may I add some, uh, let me say more broader or more general research questions as well, because uh, this is not only a volume on the Jewish example, but uh, the Jewish example is uh, an example for broader questions in the history of consumption. So first of all, there is still the uh, question remaining of Jewish exceptionalism. I started with mentioning uh, our uh, trials to define German or Germanness uh, uh, or German entrepreneurship, uh, but similar, the Jewish exceptionalism uh, has a quite uh, unclear definition and essence, and uh, the problem remains how to compare the Jewish experience with that of other groups. Um, Can Jewishness really be compared as such, or is it simply necessary to compare more specific circles, such as Jewish immigrants, Jewish elites, or poor marginalized groups within the Jewish community? Uh, Second, um, I'm still interested in this, uh, um, yeah, this, uh, the Jewish uh, contributions to the rise and the establishment of modern consumer cultures and uh, which in my mind has always to be embedded in more general history. Uh, So uh, the question, for instance, whether kosher margarine is a Jewish product or is a product of modern advanced technology uh, is still open. What what are the core elements? Is this the religion uh, or other implements, or is it the typical typical terms of economic uh, and technological uh, development? Uh, Third, I guess an important issue is that uh, although we focus predominantly on Europe and the U.S., and only in one case in the Isra- to Israel, uh, spaces matter. And uh, there were striking differences between Europe, the United States, and Israel, uh, even across similar branches and similar institutions. And these regional variations have to be examined, as well as, for instance, differences between urban and rural settings or borderlands, or frontiers, or whatever. Uh, Fourth, I guess, time and timing is needed to uh, uh, this story. Um, I would always uh, stress the importance of the 19th century for the rise of the modern consumer societies, but we are telling this predominantly as 20th century stories. But the starting point was earlier. And the final uh, point, um, we talk so much about consumer cultures, praised in some way, capitalistic societies and all the new opportunities. But Jewish consumer cultures also included 
alternatives to capitalism, to capitalist consumer culture. Zionism and consumer cooperatives question the dominant trends in modern history, and they fit well with strong anti-capitalistic sentiments among many Jews in the 20th century. Uh, so I guess we have also to focus on their interest on these alternatives to capitalism. Thank you for that. I always tell my students that good scholarship sparks more questions than gives answers. So I'm really glad that I was able to read this book and then also discuss it with you because I already have a list of questions in front of me. We have, however, taken up quite a bit of your time today. And I want to wrap up our interview with the traditional closing question on New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? I know, um, Paul, you are working on a project about German-Jewish immigrants to the United States in the 1930s. Um, you could tell us a little bit more about that, or maybe if there's something else that you have on your plate as well. Sure. Since I already talked about that project, I could mention one kind of spinoff project that I've been working on is one particular emigre, one, um, and many of the subjects that I'm working on are actually Austrians, including this one, and I have not yet decided what I'm doing with him, although um, because I really need to finish the book that I'm writing now, but um, it's potentially writing a larger project about this individual and in, in his world. Um, his name was Friedrich or Fred Hacker. He was born in Vienna in 1909 and ended up coming to Los Angeles where he taught at USC among other things. Um, he was also a, I should mention, he studied medicine in Vienna, had to leave Vienna in 1938 for obvious reasons, finished up in Switzerland, then went to New York, Topeka, Kansas, and then Los Angeles. And uh, he was, um, he studied psychiatry and became a psychoanalyst. One of the things he did here in Los Angeles was become a kind of psychoanalyst to the stars. And he had a number of really well-known Hollywood patients um, I could talk about perhaps in another context. Uh, I find that trajectory very interesting. But in addition to that, what really draws me to Hacker is that he established himself as a kind of psychiatric or psychoanalytic expert on violence and terrorism. And he was, he was brought in to, um, in kind of many famous cases, um, including the Patty Hearst kidnapping. The German government hired him after the 1972 Olympics as a kind of security consultant to advise them um, about you know, what, what had gone wrong and how better to handle terrorist situations. He was then hired by the Austrian government, um, and he had many connections to um, Austrians who were coming into power in the 1970s um, around Bruno Kreisky, who he had known since childhood. Um, he um, was brought in when Soviet several, well, I'll back up and just say, in their attempts to get out of the Soviet Union, many Jews went through Austria, so East Berlin to Vienna to West Berlin to Rome was a common path for Soviet Jewish immigration. And there was in 1973 an incident where several Soviet Jews on their way to Israel were taken hostage by Palestinian terrorists and Hacker was brought in to negotiate their release. And this 
Um, he essentially gave the Palestinians, uh, kind of advised Kreisky to accede to their demands, which was that Austria would not take in any more, um, any more Soviet Jews, although that was sort of a trick in its own way. But this ends up being an international imbroglio involving Golda Meir coming to Vienna to, to, to yell at Kreisky and um, Hacker uh, kind of continuing on in his um, gaining kind of more international stature. So what I'm really interested in in the case of Hacker is this tr- kind of transatlantic life, this kind of Vienna, Los Angeles sort of celebrity that he created for himself. And he, I should also mention along the way that what another thing that draws me to him is that he was in conversation with so many key figures, many of whom he brought to speak in Los Angeles through the Hawker Foundation. Um, so kind of leaders of the world of critical theory, psychology, psychoanalysis, um, social theory, you name it. Um, so he was really kind of at the center of the world of German speaking intellectuals in California for a while, even though it's not completely clear that they accepted him as one of their own because many saw him as a bit of an opportunist and somebody who was selling, you know, kind of in it for the, for the publicity, but that's something I'm toying with. So when I finished this project on um, expert knowledge in the American household during the cold war, I will turn more attention to Fred Hacker. Well, I'm currently finishing a small book on the history of hemp and cannabis in Germany during the long 19th century. This is a story of the replacement of traditional German agricultural resources by global commodities and uh, the replacement of a new exotic drug coming from the East by advanced pharmaceutical alternatives in the free market of the late 19th century. And this happened a century before strict drug regulation, drug regulation was enforced uh, with opium uh, laws uh, in Germany and uh, on a global scale. And I'm still working on a larger biography of the Reckles family. From the name you hear, these are German immigrants to the United States. But they became the sugar kings in the American West and in Hawaii. They were pioneers of the U.S. beet sugar industry, and they shaped the growth of both San Francisco and San Diego in the decades around 1900. It is an attempt to write American history between 1860 and 1940 with the perspective of uh, three generations of successful immigrants who lived the American dream and who changed both the United States and California and who are forgotten in Germany today. Sounds like both of you have an awful lot going on. So I anticipate having several more interviews with y'all over the coming years. Paul and Ula, thank you for joining us today on New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank Thank you. you so much, Amber. Listeners, if today's discussion caught your interest, please pick up a copy of Jewish Consumer Cultures in 19th and 20th Century Europe and North America, either directly from Palgrave Macmillan, Macmillan, or you can always order it from your local bookstore.